This is Star Talk. Hi, it's Emily Rice here. Some of you might know me as DJ Carly Sagan, uh, but in real life, I'm professor of astronomy and astrophysics at the CUNY College of Staten Island, as well as a research associate at the American Museum of Natural History, where our benevolent overhost, <laughs> I say that? our benevolent overlord is the director of the Hayden Planetarium. But this is Star Talk All Stars. I'm your all star host tonight, and I have with me in the studio my comedic co host, Chuck Nice. Yes, Emily. Thanks for being here. Of course. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing great, and I should, and I purposely saved this for the moment in front of our listeners to ask you about your beautiful new bundle of joy. Thank you. Yeah, the last time I recorded, I was Whoa. <laughs> you were hugely pregnant. Yeah. <laughs> I'm telling and you. And I had him just about, just like two or three weeks after, after that. Awesome. I wasn't yeah. really ready to go. Well, how's he doing? Oh, he's amazing. He's uh, just fantastic. And this yeah. is your first child too, yes. right? Yeah. yeah, my so, little all-star. And are you yeah. sleeping yet? No. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> and you don't mind because this is your first child. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's like everything of... is magical and wonderful. Yeah. And now, see, I'm on my third child. <laughs> and that's when you just don't give a damn. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, enough of that. Congratulations. Thank you. And we should introduce our guest. Yes. This episode of All Stars, we're going to delve into one of the hottest stories of the year, the discovery of the TRAPPIST-1 system and its seven exoplanets. To help us with that, we've got a very special guest today. David Kipping, who is a professor of astronomy at Columbia University. Hey, greetings to all you star talkers out there across the space-time continuum, wherever and whenever you are. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not talking to an amateur here. So you're a research astronomer. We'll get to that. But you have your own YouTube channel, right? That's right, yeah. We uh, we have a YouTube channel called Cool Worlds, the Cool Worlds Lab. That's the name of my group at, okay. at Columbia University. And we do like a vlog-style, uh, few-minute, five-minute videos once a week, roughly, where we talk about you know research papers we've been working on or just cool ideas that are happening in the field of exoplanets. That's so, cool. Yeah, go check it out. Kind of awesome. Yeah, Not yeah that, that is. Very... Groups have, like, I'm proud of my research group. I'll plug them. BDNYC. We have a logo uh, that's the subway. Actually, let me do this for the... Video watchers at home for Star Talk All Access. So it's the actual. It, it is a logo. great. Yeah, it's the actual subway. Um, yeah, uh, train the y, letters. Yeah, except so we for had the a y. joke about the Y tra- because there there's a Y that's red, but there's no Y train. There's no right. red Y train. Um, but there for a little while there was no. So we study objects called brown dwarfs, and there was no Y class of brown dwarfs. But we were looking for them, and so we had this joke going about there's no Y train, there's no Y dwarfs. Now the Y dwarfs are discovered. And so they've ruined our joke. <laughs> right. There's why dwarfs, which we'll talk about in a minute, probably when we get to the science topic of today's show. But no why train. But you guys, do you guys have a logo for Cool Worlds? We not really. We we have Saturn. Everybody's got to have a logo. Saturn. It's Saturn. We're not as slick as you. But yeah. I heard that you had. Some, didn't you not have like some problem with like the New York uh, subway service? We're like, hey, that's our Maybe. logo. Like cool kids, though. Yeah. The cool. This the cool is world's kids like as the well. hip science. <laughs> yeah, and I'm sure that you have quite a following. Uh, for those of you who uh, don't have the benefit of watching us on video, uh, David looks like he could be in. 
and kind of like an indie rock band. Like, you know, uh, he looks like the lead singer of like a really oh cool hip wish, indie rock I band. I wish my wife said the same thing. Oh, really? <laughs> she was like, you look like a total nerd. <laughs> but I appreciate you saying that, Chip. Long inner yeah. overlap between like hipster and nerd. There really is. Movies, yeah, which I feel like yeah. the nerds are yeah. kind of riding the. Yeah, because like I, I look at you and I'm like, oh, here's a guy who is clearly a professor at Columbia or he's importing, <laughs> uh, I'm not importing, but selling locally sourced coffee in Brooklyn. <laughs> one or the other. At one point there was, you know, one of those, those, those internet games where you play like, is this a, God, can I say this? Is this a family show? Is it, it's a porn star name or a My Little Pony name? Like oh, that really? was one of the things where it's like you had to guess like which, you know, was it a porn star name or My Little Pony name? Okay. And then there was also like, is this a homeless person or a, or a science professor? Oh, really? <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that's what you think of. No, 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 no. Now it's like, that was the old one. This was like way back in the beginning of the internet. Now it's like, oh, is this a, is this a hip, science hipster or, um, or is this a, a scientist or a or, Brooklyn or, hipster? Or or Brooklyn or hipster. Like yeah. Okay, yeah. cool. Indie cool. rocker or astronomer. I just like the, I can't get over the porn star My Little Pony. Like, that's a thing. Did you, you never heard about this? Did yeah. I? I was the one that spent too much time on the internet? I think, huh. yeah. Ooh, so yeah. what are we going to talk about today? Let's. We're going to get to some stuff. Well, yes. Uh, yeah, sorry for the uh, extended the intro, but that was still fun. Before we take our first Cosmic Queries, let's take a second to talk about exoplanets. This is your research area of expertise, yeah. right, David? Yeah, this is a pretty epic discovery. Kind of uh, hit a lot of us out the blue. We'd only just recovered from the news of Proxima Centauri having right. an Earth-mass planet around it. Yes. And then this discovery sort of not just goes one better, but seven better. Better, has seven Earth-sized planets. But it wasn't even so. We knew about this planet, the this star, and the and some of these planets beforehand, right? Yeah, that's right. There was, uh, I think, uh, two of them were had had uh, the orbital periods. They knew that those planets were there, and there was a hint of a third signal in there. And then they got some time on NASA's Spitzer Space Telescope, uh-huh. and they observed the star continuously for, I think, it was something like 500 hours, which is a lot of time. It's a lot of time. And for they saw, telescope. like, just transits everywhere in this star. Like, <laughs> it's just full of transits. It's a transiting so, wow. system. So we know that these planets are there. Why? So what's happening is there's a there's each of these seven planets is passing in front of the star blocking out some of the light for a short amount of time and uh, it's happening periodically. So the orbital periods of these planets, their year is very, very short compared to the Earth. You know, the Earth's 365 days. Mm-hmm. These planets are more like sort of uh, one day up to maybe two weeks. And so every couple of weeks you're seeing like a bunch of these planets pass in front of the star and loads and loads of dips all over the place when you look at the brightness over time. So that's how they found these things. Awesome. And you study exoplanets, right? That's right, yeah. What kind of exoplanets do you study? Do you study these types of exoplanets? or different ones? All sorts. I, I don't discriminate. All sorts of exoplanets are fine with me. I guess we particularly like planets uh, uh, which we call cool worlds, which we really mean not just like dope. We're not like trying to use it in that sense. We mean like worlds which are at long periods where they are cool enough that they could be, you know, potentially hospitable for life. Right. We don't want the super, oh. super hot ones so much, but they're also kind of interesting in their own Literally way. cool. Like yeah, actually, literally cool. Actually, yeah, right. Cool. Exactly. Yes. And uh, we like the worlds which are far enough from their start. They can have rings. They can have moons. There are going to be all sorts of extra stuff happening. So, we'll, we'll yeah, get to we'll that get a little to that. bit later. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, Should we start with our Already queries? fascinating. I love it. And let's get into our queries. And, of course, we have taken these questions from all across the Internet, wherever we have a presence. And we always start with a Patreon patron because they give us money. <laughs> thank and you. So we say thank you. Science don't come for free. That's right. And uh, <laughs> we will give you priority uh, in terms of your query. And what I'm really saying to you people is 
we can be bought <laughs> so for a price, and it's it's not that much. We are we can be bought, and we are cheap. So <laughs> here's the first question, and it comes from Frank Kane, and Frank Kane says this: I've heard that Trappist ones exoplanets are tidally locked to their star. How do we know that? And what does that mean for their suitability for life? And Frank comes to us from Orlando, Florida. And uh, that's a great question, Frank. An excellent question. That's a great question, yeah. A lot of people have been asking that as well. I right. Think. So yeah. we, we actually don't know for sure that they are tidally locked. But There's no, like, it, observation. Right? Exactly. Right. Like, no so, one, no so one has as, proof of that. So, as, And just for me as a layperson, when you say that, Oh, sure, that observation would be like our moon exactly. at, to the Earth. Like we can observe that the moon is actually tidally locked. Yeah, And the assumption is this is bad for life because you have one side of the planet, maybe like the, the American continent, for example, on the Earth, constantly mm-hmm. facing the sun all the time, like the, all the way around its orbit. Mm-hmm. And the other side might, you know, freeze out because it's going to be so cold. So this is the, the dilemma that, you know, if you have a tidally locked planet, maybe it's not so good for life. In this case, so the reason why we think they probably are tidally locked is that if you uh, simulate the, the the planetary system on a computer, you let them all the planets be freely rotating, you give them random mm-hmm. rotation periods. This is what they actually did in the paper. They simulated their orbits, and they found that within 400 million years, which sounds like a lot, but on a cosmic right. timescale is yeah. not that much, not a long they time. are all locked. It doesn't take that long for them to lock. So within you know a cosmic blink of an eye, right. no matter how fast they initially start spinning, they're going to end up tidally locked pretty quickly. So that's why we think they probably are, but we don't have direct proof that they are. And why do they end up tidally locked? Yes. So this is interaction between um, the the star and the planet, uh, basically. So what's happening is as the uh, star, uh, as the planet is rotating round, um, it's, it has a slight tidal bulge from the from the gravity of the star. So the gravity of the star is kind of making it's like a squash ball. It's squashing the planets down into these little ellipsoids. Oh. And as it rotates round, mm. yeah, same thing. As it rotates round, uh, one side of this ellipsoid is a little bit closer, and one side's a little bit further away from the star. And the star's kind of pulling on the near side a bit harder. So it's actually removing angular momentum off the off the planet. It's literally. Uh, not literally, but it would be, it's a, it's it's like a braking system for a yeah. planet. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly a braking system. It's a braking yeah. system for a planet. Yeah. Yeah. Tidal braking. Tidal braking. Tidal braking. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Wow, that's super cool. And so uh, the implications for life would be, like you said, because you, yeah, so, and this is, I'm just going to add to your uh, question, um, Frank, because I I've wondered this when you have a tidally locked planet like this, and let's say that it's in the Goldilocks zone, uh, is it possible? And this is just from my imagination that there might be a strip, uh, a stripe throughout the sphere of the planet, where that is the only place where you have habitable life. Yeah, that's actually they call that the Terminator, which is what? a pretty cool name, right? Get out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Same thing we call it on the moon. I think this is yeah. actually a Jeopardy question the other way. This is how you can tell I'm a new fam- new parent is that my husband and I watch Jeopardy now religiously. <laughs> yeah. Just before bedtime. It's fantastic. Oh, that's so funny. Uh, not Wheel of Fortune. So the, term- uh, the Terminator is not the bringer of death. It's the bringer of life in this case, potentially. Yeah. So, yeah it, it's Terminator on the moon, but the Terminator on the moon shifts. Right, because the the we have the moon is tidally locked. That was a great example you used, Chuck. Right. The moon is, the moon tidally, is tidally locked, locked to us. But right. the 
sunlight is coming from the sun, the starlight is coming from the sun instead of from the Earth. Right. And so we can kind of think about the moon when we think about these planets, but not really. Because there's the the moon, the Terminator moves around the moon, mm-hmm. so that would be moving. But with these planets, the Terminator <clears throat> stays put. We'll be stationary. Yeah, so there is no dark side of the moon. I always like to tell my students that Plink Floyd lied to you. There's no yes. dark side of the moon. But for these Trappist planets, there is a dark side of these planets. That's actually work, why moons were, could be better places. We'll come to moons later. Okay, but that's we'll get why to the moons. moons could be better that's places. I'm wearing for my moon shirt yeah. today to remind me. Yeah. But the Terminator would be like perpetual sunset. Yeah. Sunrise or sunset, beautiful. it doesn't matter yeah. because it's not changing. Right. Oh, man, that's so cool. Isn't that kind of cool? That is really, really cool. I wouldn't mind living in the Terminator zone. (laughs) (laughs) No, I wouldn't mind retiring there. As long as Skynet's not there. (laughs) (laughs) We have another question? Uh, Yeah, let's move on to another question. This is Nick Morrow. Nick comes to us from Facebook and says this. Is it correct that red dwarfs, such as Trappist-1, are assumed to persist for trillions ah, of years, awesome. much longer than the lifespan of our own sun. Now, that uh, that sounds pretty cool. I never heard that before, but I can oh, only yeah. imagine that it sounds like it's better to burn out than the fade away. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, well, these stars so why is like, that? They do fade away. So this is, I love that people, like the, the, the our Star Shark listeners know to ask about the star because this is also something different about yeah. these planets than kind of a lot of the other planets that we found before, right? So yeah. do you, David, do you care about the star that you find your exoplanets oh, around or sure. not? Sure, really? I mean, these stars, uh, exoplanet astronomers love finding planets around these particular types of stars because it's so much yeah. easier for us. So these, this star is actually about one-tenth the size of the sun. It's a really, really small star. Okay. If you made it any smaller, it would be a brown dwarf. It actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it, it would be close. the sort of object you'd say. It wouldn't so be a star anymore. The super nerds among you, it's an M8. An M8. If you know the spectral types, O B A F G K M. Did I do that right? O B A F G K M. Yeah. L T Y. The the L T Y are the brown dwarfs. Right. Officially, but really we don't really know where the 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 kind of boundary is. But mm-hmm. the L T Y are the brown dwarfs, and so the Y is the coolest class. But the M is really the coolest class of stars. Yeah. All right. It's a pitiful. I'm gonna have star. to correct you there. It's, it's a, <laughs> the coolest class would be L B G T Q. <laughs> As I'm just saying. Which I, also <laughs> want to do. I want to show off my uh, heart here. Yeah, that is designed by awesome. fellow yeah. All Star Summer Ash for yeah. Startorialist. I gotta get it. Did I get? Did I plug everything now? I think I did. What else do I have? GitHub. <laughs> okay. You're right. The stars. The stars should, as far as we know, uh, live for trillions of years. Of course, yeah. we don't. It's a similar case. We don't actually know that for sure because the universe hasn't lived trillions of years yet. So we all we can <laughs> yeah, say yeah, is we've so never M-dwarfs seen. Dwarfs could spontaneously combust. Uh, yeah, I think we yeah. know. This is the. We were talking earlier i think uh, um before we started about the the um what 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 would you call the the delusions of of comedians yes uh for <laughs> but, uh, uh, just to let you guys in before the show we were talking about how uh comedians uh, persist at being comedians and i think it's because uh when they're failing in the beginning there's a delicate mixture of uh delusion and narcissism yes. that that drives them <laughs> i really feel like scientists are the same way like we have to fail a lot we just have to stick with it and persist right. but also the 
delusions. I mean, you know, we can sit here on a, you know, Saturday knowing that we're going to live for 100 years if we're lucky and talk about the universe trillions of years from now with right. complete yeah. confidence. And let me just share something that's really like keeps me awake at night about these small stars. Oh, no. And that's that. Why don't we live around one? That's it kind of bothers me because is, yeah. they, they actually make up the majority of stars. They're oh, not, really? Okay. 75% of all stars in the universe are these types of stars, these M dwarf stars. That's kind of we're already yeah. the freaks of the universe. So, wow. Around a sun like star. And we're not supposed to be special. This is the weird thing. This is what is it? It's the Copernican principle. Yeah, really, we're right? supposed we're, to be we're typical. We're not special. As observers, we shouldn't be special. And it's kind of been proven time and time again. The Earth isn't the center of the solar system. The sun isn't the middle of the galaxy. Right. Lots of stars like the sun. Now we're finding there's lots of Earth like planets. But we seem to be different. We haven't found a lot of Earth-like planets around Sun-like stars. Right. And like David said, exactly. Of have loads of them. They're full are. of them. They have yeah. way more Earth-sized planets than the Sun-like stars do, as far as we can tell right now. And they live for so much longer. Yeah. It's like, what gives? Like, how, you know, everything's working in their favor. It's kind of a mystery to in me. In case you're happening. worried about the Sun burning out in five billion years. Right, so exactly. It's not an issue for Move M dwarf. to an You're fine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if... So we can we maybe in a couple of minutes we can get to the habitability. I bet we have a good question. Oh God, yes, oh, yeah. of course. Everybody, of course, everyone wants to know about habitability. Yeah. But before we get to that, well, you know, let's talk about uh, uh, along that vein. We'll go with uh, Neil Joyner, and uh, so we won't get into habitability, but we'll talk about the likelihood of finding intelligent life on one of these planets in our lifetime. <laughs> yeah. So in our lifetime would be the operative yeah. <laughs> phrase in the question. Uh, that's that's an interesting this keeps me one. Up at night. It's uh, I guess uh, it's almost impossible to predict when we will learn the answer to that question. So I mean, it could but happen. You say tomorrow. when. You say when and not if. Yeah, uh, that's a yeah. Little bit of a uh, maybe a convolution of the two, a little bit, but yeah, we <laughs> could. Position I guess my point is, we could wake up tomorrow, and SETI has discovered because they are listening right now, and they're listening especially to these types of stars where we're discovering these Earth-sized planets. Mm-hmm. We could hear tomorrow they've discovered a, a signal, um, but it could be you know thousands upon thousands of years of listening before we hear anything. We've actually only surveyed such a tiny, 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 tiny right. fraction, that and the signal may still be coming to us. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. The signal yeah. may be there. But it may not arrive in our lifetime. Or it may not arrive in the time of human beings. (laughs) We may be extinct from the planet. More than anything else. What's that? That, That's what keeps me up at night. Because we live in the flicker. That's a, I feel like that's a T.S. Eliot or something like that that I'm that I'm stealing from. But like, w- we live in such a brief instant in the history of the universe that, you know, the, there could have been these amazing civilizations. That's a, you know, Star Wars a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Maybe that was our, you it's know, so real. Yeah. <laughs> could be like that. So, ah, what if it is and we've missed it? Yeah. We are. All I hope alone. it. I hope it happens. <laughs> Big questions to talk about. Let's take a little break and then we'll come back with more after the break. Welcome back to Star Talk All Stars. I'm your host Emily Rice. Co-hosting with me today is Chuck Nice. Hey, <laughs> and we t- we also have in the studio with us today uh, astrophysicist David Kipping. Hey, greetings to all you Star Talkers out there across the space-time continuum. Thanks so much for having me here. I'm really excited to talk about a matter of really cosmic importance today. Yes, definitely. So we're talking about exoplanets, especially the Trappist One system. Mm-hmm. Um, what do we? So we talked about a little bit about the star. We talked a little bit about the habitability of these planets. Um, well, well. So we we did talk about the lifetime of the star. Right. Just now we had the the because it's around an M dwarf star. It's not, uh, very different from a sun-like star. Right. Um. And so, what? But is 
how different is it? So it's lower mass, it's it's a smaller radius, it's cooler, right? Yeah. But what does that mean for the so, exoplanets? Yeah, so I guess maybe uh, another way of saying that question is like, are there problems for potentially people or life yeah, maybe being on those so planets? These, these stars live for a very long time yeah. because they, they spend a very long time fusing energy or fusing hydrogen to helium, sure. creating energy. But so, I think there are. I mean, everything happens in slow motion for these stars, right? So actually, you know, the sun settled down into a fairly normal star after it was born within like 100 million years, which is very, very fast. For these M dwarf stars, it tends to happen like over one to two billion years. Mm. So these these planets would have been receiving way more radiation than the Earth received for a very prolonged period of time. So even though these planets are in the habitable zone right now, even, you know, all three of them, they would have been being baked. And, you know, maybe that sterilized them for a giga year. That's a, a billion years. That's a oh, long time that they were being baked for. Bad, mm. right? Because we've had life on Earth, not, well, not complex life on Earth, but life on Earth has existed for most of the history of the solar system, right? I think it's something like billions of years. Like the life on Earth actually started very, very quickly yeah. after the sun was f- formed. It happened almost immediately after the heavy bombardment stopped, which is when the Earth was basically pummeled by meteorites and asteroids and the moon had just formed. And almost as soon as the Earth became hospitable, life pretty much appears like straight away. So, you know, oh, that's wow. that's a little kind bit of, tantalizing. Is a, yeah, is that a yeah. coincidence? Yeah. Or, that's kind of exciting. It is. And, um, but it, so what you're saying, though, is after being in a microwave oven for a billion years, the Hot Pocket might be, uh, might be spoiled. <laughs> well, been there, right? <laughs> like, billion years in the microwave yeah, will do it. Right. <laughs> wow. But is it just the, so the so I study the M-dwarfs. I'm going to say that, like, I, I pitch my research again a little bit, because we my group studies the brown dwarfs, but we also study the, some of the lower mass stars. And mm. for a long time, people... I don't want to say didn't care, but like kind of didn't care a little bit. It was like, you know, really when I was applying for grants and, you know, applying for jobs and stuff like that, I had to spin it a little bit. I had to say, you know, well, these stars are important for exoplanets because X, Y, and Z. But now like they really are. Like, you know, at first everybody was going after the exoplanets around sun-like stars, which was, you know, the last... 20 years or so but planets around these low mass stars has only happened for the last oh, these are the sexiest so, stars right, right now yeah and now everybody sure. cares about them yeah. for the longest time it was like oh you know somebody's got to study them i guess and yeah. now it's like oh you're in the best place right yeah now. it's yeah. job security yeah. because the i want to tell you that we do not understand these stars very well that's true right there's a lot about them that we don't know yeah uh, speaking of job security you may <laughs> not want to tell people that <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, in this climate, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no. Well, that uh, so should we get into another query? Yeah. Uh, because sure. we have Arun Kumar from Facebook. And Arun says this, what are the, what are the chances that this system has an asteroid belt like our own? Ooh. Would an asteroid belt even cause sufficient dimming of the host star when observing from 40 light years away. Just speculating, given that the planets orbit so close together, wouldn't that have caused a lot of exchange of material collisions uh, during the early solar system formation and thereby creating an asteroid belt? Okay. Arun, a lot of Arun really knows how to write a question. Or <laughs> how, like can I say questions. eight? He can write eight <laughs> questions. All right. So first, let's just 
Let's talk about the asteroid belt. Is there, is there a possibility? It, there's, sure, there's a possibility. We don't know about one yet. The outermost planet discovered in this system actually lives beyond what we call the snow line. So the snow line is the distance from the sun, at least in the solar system, at which uh, water ices and ammonia ices and other ices start to condense out and they become sort of solid grains. The reason why we think that's an important distance is beyond that, that's where you start to form gas giants like Jupiter, like Saturn. So you need to be beyond that distance. Now, what we find is that in the solar system, in between the last rocky planet, Mars, and the first gas giant planet is the snow line, and right bang on there is the asteroid belt. Huh. Is that a coincidence? So the idea is that you know Jupiter was migrating in when it was forming. It was moving around a lot, and it came in. It actually probably stopped Mars from growing into a super-Earth. Mars probably would have grown into a super-Earth, was it not for the influence? What's a super-Earth? A super-Earth is like, you know, add on twice the amount of mass that the Earth has. Uh, so just a bigger Earth. And Mars is kind of small. Earth on so, steroids. Yeah, and <laughs> And not only that, but it probably stopped another planet from forming, which is what the asteroid belt may have coalesced to, was it not for the influence of Jupiter migrating in so close? So it, I think the asteroid belt is closely tied to what Jupiter did early on in the solar system. Okay. We don't know about any Jupiters around the star. Um, it's actually very rare that these stars even have Jupiter mass planets. So yeah. it's not, I would, my bet would be no, but um, who Can we knows? find out? Do we have the technology to find out if there's an asteroid? belt around a star like That's this? a good question. It would be super hard right now. I mean, even detecting these uh, planets, which are like 70% the size of the Earth, that's big compared to an asteroid, which is like a few kilometers across. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Even that's like really, really pushing uh, the Spitzer Space Telescope. It was, a, it was a, you know, a, t a tough discovery for Spitzer and K2 to get those. So an asteroid belt, um, I would be skeptical we could do it with anything we have right now, that's for sure. It would have to be. So sometimes we find as asteroid belts not because they block light from the star, but because they radiate their own heat. But that for that to happen, the asteroid belt has to be close enough in that yeah. it has to be pretty warm and then re-radiate, which I think for this star is going to be very close in. And we don't find that. It's usually yeah. called an infrared excess. And there's no space, right? Like I mean, the, it's a packed planetary system. There's no room. Yeah, like, Every single H, slot is taken. Nice. <laughs> the H planet is the H planet outside of the orbit of Mercury relative to the sun, or the H planet is even inside? I, I'm not sure exactly spatially, but I know okay. it, it, its temperature is something like a hundred, uh, minus 100 degrees Celsius or something. It's a cold beyond the Relatively snow line cold, planet. But nice. still, I think because the, the, the star is so cool, everything is still packed really close in there. Actually, this brings up a discussion that I actually saw other astronomers having on Twitter, which is to think about what the planets would look like from other planets. Oh, yeah. Like sitting on one planet, like right. sitting on, say, D or E or one of the habitable ones and seeing the other planets in your sky. They'd be huge because they're so, they're they're so close. Yeah, because they're so close to one another. Right. Be bigger than the moon. Yeah, I think bigger sky. than the moon yeah. because everything is so close to one another. But then you'd also have to think about every single one of them is tidally locked. And so you'd see different phases depending on where they are relative to you. And you'd only see them at, you know, you'd have to look, you'd have to be sitting at the Terminator and see, um, you know, so you might only be able to see the exterior ones. It's a great, like, kind of solar system visualization problem to, to imagine. But there should be sci-fi yeah. about this. And I, I, I just have a feeling that we're going to see a black light poster of that at any time now. <laughs> 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 totally. It's totally trippy to think about. Uh, okay, here we go. Now we get to, uh, this is for those of you who uh, listen to the show often, you know that I really suck at uh 
pronouncing names. <laughs> I didn't want. To, I wasn't going to end it just there. Like, where's this going to go? <laughs> it did kind of seem like I was ending it right there. I had to, for those of you who, uh, right, for those of you who listen routinely, you know I really suck. Thank you. Good night. <laughs> Couple of yeah. That's a strong finish. Exactly. That was my closer. <laughs> hey, I'm Chuck Nice. I suck. All right. Uh, so I believe this is Tor or Torre uh, Balhaj. Sounds okay. good to me. Right? Okay. And look at me. I'm like looking for approval. Right? Uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, no. Uh, here we go. This is what uh, Tor or Torre says. Um, if we were to send a radio signal to that planetary system mm-hmm. using the radio hardware that we currently have or the most advanced that we currently have, would the signal be powerful enough for a potential alien civilization to detect it, mm. assuming that they are at the same technological level as we? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's, a good question. that's a really good question. Um, and if it was a directed, purposeful radio signal mm-hmm. um, without doing the formal calculation which I probably should do my, I, I want to say yes to that, to that yeah <laughs> but I know for sure that um, our, our own leakage so we produce you know just uh, radio waves from television signals and radio shows we like this to. which yeah well we used to but uh, even still there's still some leakage we could not detect that if you know if even if it was on the nearest star Proxima Centauri, Alpha Centauri. We cannot detect leakage from oh. the nearest star with our largest arrays right now. Maybe wow. the next generation, the SKA, might be up for it, which is being built right now. Okay. But right now, even le- even the nearest right? star, and this isn't the nearest star. So the whole idea of an alien civilization picking up our television broadcast, and that's how they know about our society and who totally we are episode. yeah it's yeah. like that's the whole that's that's never gonna happen well they could do it if they had much better radio receivers than us they were building planet-sized radio receivers then sure they could detect us but oh, okay that, which is not yeah. i mean we have planet so it's like a death star for rays. good yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. we yeah. built a death star that's no moon yeah it's an eavesdrop that's pretty but so you know but it's not far-fetched to think of a civilization with more technologically advanced systems than ours, right? Like... Yeah. That's what we're hoping. That's why we push forward. And maybe this other star has had trillions of years... Well, no. You know, it's more billions of years than we've had to push forward. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I just want to stay optimistic a little bit. Oh, super cool. I'm bummed to hear that they're not listening to, like, our old I Love Lucy shows. Fascinated by listening to our radio shows, I'm I'm sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, hey. Yeah. Hmm. That's a a very cool thing. So, let's... um, what else do we have? Let's move on to uh, Will Nyland. And Will comes to us from... That sounds like a pseudonym. Will Nyland. Very close to Bill Nye, isn't yeah, it? Almost, yeah, almost. <laughs> um, coming to us from Facebook. And he says this, If NASA's budget doesn't increase, would NASA have to partner with private companies uh, to uh, co-fund getting us... To anywhere we have to go. Mm. Is this a door to a new space race? Okay. So, I mean, he's looking at it from both the uh, optimistic and the realistic standpoint. Because, you know, uh, from what I understand, um, not only is NASA's budget going to be cut under our current administration, uh, but NASA now owes, uh, they have to pay back. No, I'm joking. <laughs> I was like, this is news to me. Oh, my gosh. Did you see 
<laughs> See, <They're in> death. <laughs> I was getting really nervous. No, you know what's funny is that uh, the current climate in which we it's live, so and you actually believed it. Yes, yeah. it's so believable. Oh my Anything gosh. Goes these days. Yeah, it's oh. like, yeah, oh my God, NASA just got a bill. Oh my God, yeah. we owe the government money. So, yeah. uh, but Oof. shut it down. <laughs> so, um, when it comes to when when it comes to leaving our solar system now, if we're ever going to do that, or forget leaving our solar system, let's, again. let's yeah, talk let's about talk leaving. about leaving the ISS. Yeah, let's, <laughs> back to the moon. Right. Let's let's yeah, talk about back to the moon. Is it really? Um, is it really something that's going to be a public-private partnership if it's ever going to happen? Kind of already is. So. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it has been. I think this is a big misconception about NASA is that it's really always been a public-private partnership. Like, you've always had, you know, defense contractors like Lockheed Martin and, you know, b- companies making the rockets. It wasn't always, like, purely NASA. Mm-hmm. But it's just become more out in the open now with, like, SpaceX and, and things like that. It's, like, kind of... NASA has less of a of a stranglehold on like the cool looking stuff. Mm, it gotcha. seems to me like the you know the contractors so now, have kind of become the the agencies a little bit. The 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 student has become the master almost. Right. So now now when uh, let me follow up with with Will's question just because so like you're wearing a necklace with the oh, James yeah. Webb honeycomb. Yes, that's those are the mirrors, right, for yes, the James Webb the, Telescope, my right? Necklace for the video watchers. No this actual is actual size. <laughs> <I> know, <right>? <laughs> <laughs> scale. This is three D printed, like, and I wore this especially for today. It goes with the topic, as I'm sure we'll t- well we always talk about JWST, and very soon you'll be able to get these in the Star Talk store. Okay. Because these are made by um, actually an engineering student. I think she graduated just last semester. Um, 3D printed, designed by myself and Summer Ash as part oh. of Startorialist, a Very little cool. um, collaboration. But it's a 3D printed version of the James Webb Space Telescope segmented mirror that has built the coolest things that this exists now in, in Goddard Space Flight Center. Right. Being tested. It's put on the, the telescope and it's going to go into space very, very soon. All right. So it's a NASA, it's actually, um, uh, is, is JWST a partnership between NASA and Yeah, that's, what, that's, my, that's where I was going with this. Between, yeah. yeah, oh, but it's definitely all kinds of, you know, Lockheed Martin and Ball Aerospace and, you know, there's tons and tons of different um, contractors that that build parts of it. So the, the science instruments are built by different institutions. Mm-hmm. It, some of the instruments are definitely built by European mm-hmm. um, centers. Um, it's 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 not like, you know, NASA isn't the only one. It's kind of NASA is the umbrella gotcha. where the money kind of goes out from. Okay. All right. Well, that makes sense. So so there you have it. So basically the, 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 the private... The public-private partnership already exists, and yeah. it's just a matter of how much deeper it will get yeah. so it's, that it's we can— It's kind of like how, how much we can see behind the curtain, I right. feel like, a little bit. And, and I guess— we can see a lot more than we used to be able to see. And I guess the, the real question is if there's a way to monetize get, getting to Mars or something like that. So, I mean, that's to me, that, that's— a topic for a whole entire show, yeah, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like a whole—we could get into this at, to a huge extent. But for now, we'll take a break, and we'll come back after our short break to talk— more about the Trappist One and exoplanets when Star Talk All Stars returns. Welcome back to Star Talk All Stars. I'm Emily Rice, your All Star host for this evening, and joining me is my co-host Chuck Nice. Hey, hey. We've been talking about the Trappist One exoplanet system as, with our special guest astrophysicist David Kipping. Hey there, hi. And so, before we t- go on to our next segment of Cosmic Queries, I want to make sure that we talk about. I don't. I want to call it your your moonshot a little bit, <laughs> pun yeah. intended, because this is my favorite thing about your research, which I follow, you know, all the time. But 
you want what do you want to find? You're not just looking for exoplanets. Well, which let me back up. Have you discovered any exoplanets? I'm going to subject you to the same question that I get every holiday family gathering. Uh, yeah, I guess I guess I have. I've certainly been on papers which have discovered new planets, and I have been yes. the first author <laughs> of planets. So yes, yeah, there you go. Okay, so, so the yeah, first I could t- either way. I could say yeah, but only like. Uh, Half a dozen. That's it. Sorry for the listeners. You can't hear me rolling my eyes unless yeah. the mics are really I'm, good. But I've only discovered yeah. six planets. That's only all. six Just planets. Only. What, are, what are their names? Uh, yeah. You get God, to name don't them. Don't tell me you don't, don't know the I names. Even, I actually am not super interested in these planets that much because, um, like, one other thing was Hat P twenty four. Another one I was involved was HD eight hundred six hundred six. There was a wonder you don't remember them. There was a few Kepler <laughs> ones, yeah. but they have horrible names. So do. I, yeah, Why do they do that? Why don't they name? I mean, honestly, you know, I mean, when you look at the planets in our solar system, they've got cool names. They're pretty awesome names. You know, I mean, I know they're all, you know, they, they come from mythology and stuff like that. But almost still. had a planet named George. 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 Yeah, Uranus was almost named. Was it Uranus or Neptune? Uranus, I'm pretty sure, was almost named George. Oh man! And you know what? I know, right? That would have been cool because, from what I understand, George is a butthole. So <laughs> that was a bad King, joke, King but George. I had to do it, man. I had to do it. I'm so yeah, I sorry. Like talking about anatomy. There for a <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I want everybody to YouTube. Ben wants me to plug Neil Tyson's Twitter feed, which he doesn't need my help. And the, but um, I want everybody to Google on YouTube, don't call me Colin, because I want to give a shout out to a, co- a colleague of mine, Neil Deacon, who wrote a song about naming exoplanets. And the, the, the song is called Don't Call Me Colin, and it's adorable. And it talks about how we named, we, how we named almost named a planet George. At, at one point, we were looking for a planet within the orbit of Mercury that would have been called Vulcan. There's a whole history behind naming exoplanets. Unfortunately for, for us, the names of the planets usually are named after the star. And so, and the stars have kind of boring catalog names because that's too what many happens. Stars, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So HD, HD is maybe even one of the most interesting ones because it means it was from the Henry Japer catalog, which is named after Henry Draper, who gave the money to the Harvard College Observatory back in the day. It was like the early 1900s. Okay. What's interesting to me is that it was actually, I think he had already died, but his wife went to the observatory and said, you know, find these stars, name the catalog after my husband, here's a bunch of money. And a lot of that money actually went to the women that did the finding of these stars and studied these stars. And that's the, the, the they're called the Harvard College Computers because at the time the women did like the computational work because that was thought of as, you know, kind of tedious uh, work that required a woman's touch. Like hidden figures, right? Yeah, yeah it's, yeah. it's oh, like cool. hidden figures, yeah. for, you know, 50 years earlier even and only white ladies. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but there's a lot of there's a lot of these hidden figures in in uh, science that are kind of coming out. But so some of the so Henry HD the HD star that you mentioned is from the Henry Japer catalog. Hat HAT yeah, is an acronym you know for uh, names uh, like. Let's just if it's survey. a super interesting planet, maybe like Trappist One. Let's maybe think about well, Trappist cool One. Name. Where does that name like, come from? Trappist One is not bad. I, I gotta yeah, say, yeah, I'm yeah. not I'm not I'm not mad at Trappist One. Yeah. HD. I'm sorry. <laughs> Trappist <laughs> is actually. <laughs> <laughs> Do we know what Trappist? It's named. Oh, it has. It does actually stand for something. Yeah, transfer. Right? But, but it might be a weird. So it, it's the Belgian beer. Intercaps where some letters are capital and some letters are lowercase. We do this in, in astronomy because we've kind of started to run out of ideas, and so we have to get really creative. So the, so the, the bottom line is that David doesn't care about the planets that he's discovered. I care about is, them. No, I, I probably care more about looking for the next 
thing. Yes, which is so that's what I was going to talk about. So yeah. what do you? But so you, you know, you find exoplanets by accident, right? But what do you really want to find? Yeah, so I guess the the thing which has been uh, married to my career for a while now has been trying to find the first moon around one of these extrasolar planets. Ooh. I and? guess. Well, so far we haven't yet actually okay. discovered a, a like a candidate that we can all say this is 100% an exomoon. We have some interesting things. And actually, Where are you looking for these? Is there uh, like a moon survey or moon catalog? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so we yeah, we our project's called the Hunt for Exomoons with Kepler, which gives oh, with which Kepler. gives away what we're doing. So we're using archival Kepler data. The reason why Kepler is really the only game in town for this is because you have to have uh, a very long baseline uh, in terms of time, temporal yeah. coverage ah. uh, to do this work. So we're looking really for like wobbles of planets. Mm-hmm. And if you're looking for a wobbling planet, then you have to have at least like three or four transits of these planets. And these planets have to be quite far away from their star in order to have moons. If they're too close to the star, the moons are going to get ripped off. Yeah, so we you have, have to be moons. looking at the Venus long period, guys. don't have moons. Right, exactly. So Mars you're in, you're, you're kind of a, a rock, you know, stuck between a hard place and that you have to look <laughs> at these long period planets, but those are the planets which you have the least data for. Ah. So that's why it's, it's hard. Kepler only has three and a half years of of data before there's a bit more than that it's it's four and a third years but yeah okay. that's what we're working including with. k2 no just okay. just k1 the, okay. the original Vanilla Kepler. OG Kepler. God bless it. Yeah, I love, that's, the, that's still the data set <laughs> I'm Going out for, for old Kepler. Exactly. So, okay, so yeah, the, the Kepler Space Telescope was supposed to last for seven years, I think, altogether. After it was, it was proven successful. Well, it kind of still is, right? The funding is still very successful, but the original Kepler mission was uh, supposed to last for even longer than it did, but one of the reaction wheels failed to keep it. Two. Two, pointed two Yeah, two reaction wheels failed leaving only two um, and then it had to be repurposed in a very ingenious way it's now called k2 i think we mentioned it earlier in the show and it's it's but it can't point in the same place where it was pointing before and so it's kind of starting to look at other places in the nearby galactic neighborhood instead of just the one place before mm-hmm. but this like this time baseline you said is the important thing yeah they the k2 is looking at each field for about three months that's not long enough, not for, enough. What, for what we want to do. Um, so Kepler's really the only game in town, and it's kind of depressing because if we don't see anything with the Kepler data, we have to wait a long time right. before someone's going to launch a mission which is going to do really? a very uh, long baseline like that again. Probably Plato, which is in okay. 2024 by the Europeans, is the next thing in town which is going to be usable for this Not TESS? So TESS is another one that's coming up even sooner. They're yeah, transiting tests. exoplanet survey satellite. I'm super excited about TESS, but maybe not for moons. So it's, yeah. it's uh, looking each field for just a month and that's oh. it on the poles on it actually has some overlap so it kind of looks all the way from the ecliptic you know along where the the solar system planets lie all the way up to the poles and it looks all the way up in one go kind of if you're online you can sort of see where i'm doing my fingers but it kind of looks along a strip <coughs> from the equator up to the north pole and it moves along and ah. on that north pole it actually is continuous <coughs> so we get um, almost a year on the pole. Ah. But even a year is not enough for me. Yeah, yeah. So, Especially you got to look yeah. for something far, far enough away from the star. What about for M dwarfs? So would it be easier to find? Yes. Yeah. Except the M dwarfs don't have these these giant planets. Yeah, that's that moons, yeah, exactly. Right? There's always a problem. There's always a problem. Yeah, I, I was going to say. So basically, you just like being frustrated, is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. I like. <laughs> I like. This the is this is very challenging. Reward. Yeah. Captivating. Like that's part of what I love. Like I love how obvious it is. Like there's all kinds of moons in our solar system, but we haven't 
found exomoons yet. Yeah, and you will. And um, we, we did mention earlier about, uh, just to come back to Trappist warning, you know, the planets are all tidy locked to the star, right? And then people have pointed out, you know, that could be a bad thing for life. But one of the reasons I love looking for moons is that they get around that problem. So even though, as you said, there is, you know, the moon's tidy locked to the Earth, but both sides of the moon get equal amounts of illumination. Yeah. There's no such thing as the dark side of the moon. Yeah. <coughs> so these moons are great. But can we have matter. a tidally locked... Can we have a moon around a tidally locked planet? Yeah. Is there anything that prevents that? No. No? Come on. Awesome. So there you go. So that, that may be where your life is. <laughs> yeah. All right. That's where I'm moving to. Well, guess what? We are already down to, that's right, the lightning the round. And awesome. uh, so what we're going to do is uh, read the questions. And is there a record for how many questions have been answered during the lightning round? We can talk really, really fast. No, no we're not that com- machines we're, we're not that competitive. Yes. <laughs> Okay. Uh, Samuel Coheri wants to know this. Could the system already be gone Ooh. because of the destruction of its star? That's a hard no. Because a hard no. it's only 40 light years away, so that means we're only seeing the signals. We're only seeing the light from the star 40 years ago. 40 years is nothing. This is, do we actually know the age of the star? So we know that the star <laughs> lives for a very long time. But I don't think we actually know the age of the star very well. It's not in its death throes, that's for yeah. sure. So. And, and we don't think that it's very young either. So this okay. is part of the discussion that I've been listening to because I'm interested in the star even more than the planet. And I don't think we think that it's a young star. Gotcha. So that means that it's probably at least hundreds of millions, if not already billions of years old. Okay. So, yeah. So 40 years is nothing. 40 there you years go. Is so the answer is... Not likely at Still all. Oh, there, which is kind Still of there. nice. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. All right. So pack your bags, buddy. Uh, okay. <laughs> oh, Dean, after the. There we go. <clears throat> uh, this is Martine, who wants to know this, coming to us from Twitter. Could the gravity pull between the planets be so strong that it would l- make life impossible to Ooh. begin with? Yeah, great question. So there is, uh, if you actually simulate these planetary systems, they are probably gravitationally interacting, mm-hmm. and that means... They have to be. That's how we yeah. know the masses. Exactly, right. and that means they probably have some degree of orbital eccentricity. What that means is you're going to have a situation maybe like Io. Io around Jupiter gets mm-hmm. tidally heated, has all this volcanism on its surface. And while the pull- mm-hmm. pushing and pulling of uh-huh. the gravity... Go we ahead. know that the innermost planet, Trappist-1, probably receives more tidal heating than Io does. The planets exterior to that mm-hmm. probably get less than Io, but more than the Earth. Earth, and the, the one on the far outside probably gets less than the Earth as well. Yes. So in the middle, it's a, yeah, there is some tidal heating, which could be an issue. Good, good it, or bad? It could be good or bad. You know, if you don't have any radioactivity to get your plate tectonics going to have a warm interior, then you need that tidal heating. Huh. If you don't, then uh, yeah, it's, it could. It depends. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Mm. It depends. Solid answer. Solid answer. <laughs> yes, it depends. There we go. <laughs> <clears throat> Uh, Alexander McCoy says this, with them having less starlight, uh, might uh, um, forests of Trappists be darker trees with violet leaves? Oh, I like Ooh, the fact weird. that Alexander is thinking about uh, vegetation yeah, on the it's planet. Not even a what if it's, yeah, it's he's And he's already no, got I, down to the, uh, the autumnal colors that it might possess. Yeah. Uh, but go ahead. Uh, yeah. Would that be? I mean, that's. It's I guess a, that's more for an astrobiologist. Yeah, uh, that's <laughs> a great question. But so, neither of us. Sorry, I don't think. Mark Watney. We got to ask. Yeah, Mark yeah. Watney. But um, there is a great video I was watching by Physics Girl, and if you know Physics oh, Girl's I YouTube videos, I know Physics Girl. And I she love does a, She did a video there. about why are plants green. And actually, it's remarkable that we still don't really know. There are like ideas as to why that's true, but we don't really know. Because green, if the plants are green, that means they reflect the green light because that's what we see. Yeah, exactly. They're not using it. Yeah, they're not using the green light, but the sun peaks peaks its own spectrum in in green green, light. And so the most of the sun's light is actually in the green window. It doesn't look green because it's 
it's just about the same amount of light in all the colors. But yeah, that's a yeah. little bit weird. And there are some plants which are uh, black or very dark leaves. Yeah. I mean, I'm yeah. sure you've seen them. So, it, you know, it's possible the planet could be covered in those things instead. But uh, it's it's kind of unclear. Like, we don't even really know why it's happening on the Earth, let alone yeah. what it's going to be happening on other planets jump right to now. Yeah. Uh-huh. Excellent question, though. Wow. That might be just interesting even more than the people. Yeah. <laughs> cool. All right. All right. This is Arjun who says this. One more question. How do we uh, How do we know about their similarity to Earth? Uh, that That's... Yeah. yeah. How do you know? How do you know that they're similar? Guesses. I wouldn't buy any real estate, right? Yeah. I mean, a lot of astronomers get really upset when the the media keep calling it Earth-like because, like, you don't know it's Earth-like. All you know is that it's the size of the Earth and it has the amount of radiation it receives is roughly the same as the Earth receives. Well, these ones we're lucky because we know a little bit about the mass. The error bars are big. The uncertainty is pretty big. But we do know about the mass because it's a multiple planet system. And so it's, it's called the transit timing. Yeah technique, right? Mm -hmm. Because the transits are a little bit different because of all the gravitational interactions. Mm-hmm. So, so we can use that to to estimate the masses of some of these planets. And but the transit yeah, is where it comes in front of the sun yes. and, and, and the, yeah, the light dips. Yeah, and the light so, a little right. bit. Yeah. Okay, cool. So the window dips in and then it comes back out and then we know. Yeah. That's great. Well, there you have it. We're done. All right. Ooh, we're we out of time. We solved the... everything yes, about this exciting no, exoplanet no. system. I got to tell you, it was fascinating. This is, I've learned more than I ever thought I would about the uh, seven dwarfs. <laughs> <laughs> the red star and the seven the red dwarfs. red star and the seven dwarfs. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to Star Talk All Stars. Thank you, Chuck Nice, for being my comedic co host. Always a pleasure. And thank you, David Kipping, for coming down from Columbia University to talk to us today. This was great fun. Thanks for having me. I've been your host, Emily Rice, and stay curious. Curious listeners. This is Star Talk.